Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. And uh, Brian Schmidt. Good evening, gentlemen. Brian Schmidt of, of no social media. <laughs> That's all right, though. Soon. Mid-February. Hopefully. Mid-February is my goal. Okay. Uh, Doesn't po- make any less. Yeah. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our own perspectives on how we get things done in our shops. We also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I'd also like to say hello to our newest patrons, Joe James, Chris Jacobson, Paul Hannock, and Chris Van Campen. Thank you guys. And we sincerely hope that you will give us your support and stay tuned at the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our own shops. So we're going to get right into it. And Hui, you have the first question. Okay. This question is from Michael and he says, hello. My question is regarding the placement of a dust collector. I have a 250 square foot shop. So every square foot is precious. I understand where you're coming from. I am a hobbyist woodworker, DIYer. My current dust collection is a shop vac with a dust stopper, bucket separator, and a cart. One hose, all my tools, and multiple converters to fit each tool. The cart doubles as an outfeed table for the table saw. I have an open rafter ceiling with a storage floor in it, currently filled with crap (laughs) I should get rid of. I am considering a more powerful collector and ducting to two machines, like a miter saw and a table saw, and a boom arm that can be used for miscellaneous tools like skill saw, drill press, etc., I'm looking at the Jet DC 650 MK or something similar. Uh, One to two horsepower, he says, uh, somewhere between the $600 and $800 price range. So finally, my question, could a system like this be mounted in that attic storage above the shop and function correctly? Any obvious issues I'd run into? I have a simple pulley system for getting the full bag from there to the main floor. A couple concerns are performance issues based on the elevated height and safety. I don't really have any concerns, but this is a totally a I don't know what I don't know sort of situation. I love the podcast, guys. I binged all of your episodes during the height of the pandemic summer of 2020. I took a break for more than a year, but I'm back and I'm glad you're still around. Best regards, Michael. So uh, the question is whether or not putting a dust collector uh, such as a, a bag dust collector, so somewhere between a one to two horsepower system uh, in the attic rafters is going to be an issue. And I know of one person, actually, no, I know of a couple of people that have done this. So there's, there's this, uh, YouTube channel. I don't know if he posts anything anymore, but his name was, um, or his channel was the down to earth woodworker. And uh, I, I think that was sort of a silly name because the things that he did were far from down to earth. He actually did put a dust collector in his attic area of his house to isolate the noise. I mean, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I have louder, louder things in my shop than the dust collector, but the dust collector is a loud system. Uh, but he did it successfully, and I don't see there being any issue. I, th- I think with that size of a system, um, if you're just uh, hard ducting it to two systems and having one flex line, I think you'll be all right. Just be careful of how long you're run- making those runs and how you make those runs because you will see... Uh, a significant pressure drop if you've got any sort of weird kinks or if you're using a lot of flex line. You know, personally, 
I think I would prefer not to have it in the attic space because of convenience of getting to the bag. But, you know, if you've got a pulley system and it works, uh, what is it? We were just talking about 5S, the the ability to sustain, right? The ability to to empty that bag whenever you need to empty that bag because it's going to be an issue. Anyway, you guys probably know more about this than I do, but I don't see there being an issue other than the convenience factor of, of emptying that bag. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I, I'm with you too. It sounds like the attic area is open air as well. It's not a contained closed attic. It's open rafter with with a kind of a plywood floor, but with that open access, I don't I don't see there being any issue. I really like I do want to say, Michael, I like I like your approach of putting your shot back and dust stopper bucket into mm-hmm. a cart, but keeping it a be- keeping it below sort of your work surface so that you don't mm-hmm. give up vertical space. I just made that change in my own shop uh, to create an additional workspace out of that without and still being able to keep my shot back and separator. The other, the other idea, it's it's not really the attic, but Rockler and a few others have wall mount dust collectors. So if you've got a tall corner of your shop that you can mount something like that to, where now you don't have as mm-hmm. much distance between that and potentially a separator if you're going to go two-stage with your dust collector. Um, that's what I'm doing in mine, is I've got mm-hmm. it tucked out of the way and as high up on the wall as I can get it. And that way, it's still convenient to to empty, like we was mentioning. Guy, what do you think? I don't see any problem at all with putting the, the the dust collector in an attic space. The only real issue I see with it is the convenience issue when you have to empty the the bag. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, but he's got a pulley system. That seems I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's I probably know, pretty I, I neat. Know, but I, don't a, I don't know what a pulley system is going to do to help them change the bags. Uh, I guess low, uh, take it up, lower it, lower the system. Is that what he's talking mm-hmm. about? I'm wondering if it is. I, I'm not exactly sure, but let's assume that it is. Okay. Um, so if he's got like a, so you're talking about like a dumb waiter and he pulls it and the thing comes down and pulls it and it goes back up. Uh, that's, yeah. That's how I, that's how I envisioned it. I envisioned it as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in, in that case, yeah, I mean, and I, I think the main reason he's doing this is because he doesn't want to have the, the, the footprint of this stuff in his shop is the main reason. And if that yeah. works, that works. So, yeah. Brian, you had a, want to say yeah, something? Yeah, the only other thing I'd add and, and learn from my mistake, I, I started with the smaller dust right uh, dust collector from Rockler. And it's not it's not giving me quite the, the suction that I need for the tools mm-hmm. and the length of hose that I need to, to use to run it. So don't don't skimp on power with the dust collector, especially if you're going to put it up there and potentially have longer runs and more turns. Yeah, I'll let you borrow my anemometer. What were the, the readings you were getting out, out of that? I, 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 haven't, I haven't tested it back out yet. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I'll get that back to you, though. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not in any hurry. I haven't, like I said, I haven't used it in uh, probably four or five years. So, yeah. Um, well, Brian, I think you got the next one, man. All right. This question is from Dominic. Dominic says, hi, Guy, we, and Brian. Thank you for the very informative podcast. I've been listening for years. The knowledge that I've gained from the Woodshop Life podcast helps me make my limited time in the shop way more efficient. Thank you for generously sharing your wisdom. Question for you guys about sheet goods selection. What sheet goods do you typically use for the projects in your shop? And what is your thought process when deciding if a particular project should use Baltic birch Common seven-layer plywood, MDF, etc. Baltic birch is a premium grade option, but do you use it for projects such as shop cabinets, sleds, and fixtures? 
Thank you, Dominic from Santa Cruz, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use, I use a, a fair amount of plywood and I tend when we're talking, and I think Dominic's really asking about plywood for shop projects. So not, not any sort of furniture build or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when, when we're talking about a shop project, I'll go with whatever I have around as long mm-hmm. as it's in, and for jigs, as long as it's, you know, flat, um, my, I get all my lumber from Frank Miller lumber, which is about an hour and a half from here, but they deliver delivered to Indianapolis. And, uh, that way I don't have to go haul sheet goods out of Lowe's or home Depot. And I end up with better quality and they mm-hmm. have a poplar shop grade plywood that mm-hmm. can't be much more than 50 or 55, 60 bucks. And the quality on it's actually really good. And it is perfect for shop furniture. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a seven, it might be a seven layer, but, um, not, not really any, uh, gaps or voids or anything like that. I don't use MDF a whole lot, but, mm-hmm. um, we, what about you? Yeah. So I'm using a C2, um, what they call a shop grade plywood, either in maple or, or birch. I, I don't purchase uh, Baltic birch for shop projects. Honestly, I don't, I don't think I've ever use Baltic birch to make cabinets even for like uh, the double dresser that I built. I used again, uh, paint grade plywood because well, it was getting painted. So um, it doesn't need to have that finished interior or, you know, the fancy exterior. So uh, yeah, I usually, but for shop projects, yeah, shop grade, shop grade plywood, uh, plywood C2 Uh, guy. What do you got? I use a little bit of everything. It really depends on what I'm what I'm doing. So I do use the Baltic birch now and then. It's mainly when I need it to be like really flat. Mm-hmm. And I'm making like like a like for example, it's like a, a, a jig that I need mm-hmm. flat for the table saw or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm always gonna use, believe it or not, MDF whenever and wherever I can. The only mm-hmm. problem with MDF is it doesn't hold screws well. Yeah. So yeah. if I've got something that needs a lot of screws or I'm considered about the weight of it, um, then I don't use MDF because MDF is very heavy, but it's notoriously flat. It paints well. Yeah. Um, actually, I've made a lot of the shop furniture, like the roll around cabinets and stuff. If I know they're going to be on casters and I'm not picking it up, I, yeah. I make the sides and stuff out of MDF. MDF. Yeah. Um, anyways, it really depends on what you have available in your area. Uh, I tend to get the the plywood from Home Depot. I'm a Home Depot guy, not a Lowe's guy. I think it's just preference more than anything else. But I, I do go in there and buy their, their C2, or it's actually sometimes it's D2 mm-hmm. um, plywood, you know, the maple plywood. And it's, yes. yeah. it's fine for the most part. You just have to be careful not to get, you know, stuff that's too warped yeah 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 Uh, i will rephrase the fact that i have used uh quite a bit of baltic birch for shop project like uh jigs and for templates and whatnot uh primarily because i had built a a dance floor out of baltic birch a portable dance floor out of baltic birch and there were all these scraps like uh 13 inch and 12 inch strips of Baltic birch scrap. So I just saved all of them and it must've been like a hundred panels or something because I'm still going through that Baltic birch to make jigs with. I still have some. Really? 
And you it's like it. six or seven. Yeah, I moved it. It's like six or seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, I moved it from the old house, the scrap to the new house because it's good Baltic birch. It's great to make jigs out of. Well, with so prices and availability, I think uh, that was probably a good good decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. So. Well, it's nice to see the prices coming down on that stuff. Now, I went to Home Depot not too long ago to to get some something that wasn't shop related, and I looked at the prices, and it was considerably less than it was a year ago. It wasn't a hundred dollars a sheet anymore. Yeah. It's you know like fifty, sixty dollars a sheet now. Uh, guy, is there a difference in MDF quality? For instance, there when could I be. call I my, there could be. I think, but there's. There's there's MDF and there's also HDF. HDF, yeah. When I'm when I when I call you know Worth Wood Group to put in an order for plywood and MDF, I I just tell them MDF and they they just give me MDF. Yeah, I think MDF I guess I'm not asking MDF. for HDF, right? So yeah, I think MDF is MDF is MDF. I, I I'm yeah. not sure, I, but I've never seen it graded like mm-hmm. plywood is graded. Yeah. So. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a curveball. I'm gonna ask a spinoff question here, um, guy at work. There are gonna be times where we use MDF core plywood. Uh huh. What, what's the use case for using like an MDF core plywood versus like a traditional multi-layer veneered plywood? Well, we use the the MDF core plywood for two things typically. Any door faces, any doors themselves. Um, all the doors we do as standard are overlay. And mm-hmm. trying to get flat plywood that'll close and lay flat on a face frame yeah. is next to freaking impossible. So we make those out of MDF because I mentioned before, it's it's flat. It's notoriously flat. I mean, it's flat, yep. flat, flat. So we just take that and we edge band it and you can't tell the difference. Uh, The other thing we do is we screw all our face frames to our cabinets from the outside. So our cabinet sides are actually one inch. We take three quarter inch plywood, we put pocket screws on the outside. We set the cabinet on top of the, the, the face frame face down and we screw down into the face frame for the pocket screws. Then we take quarter inch MDF core plywood. Got it. And we use that as a skin and we put that over the top of the the three quarter inch and covers up the the pocket hole screws. Those are the two things we buy MDF core plywood for. I don't know if you can call it plywood. It's just, we just call it MDF core. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. All right. Well, I think I'm going to take the next question here. And this comes from Jack Francis. And Jack says, hey, guys, I just finished listening to your latest podcast. Really good information and insight as usual. Well, of course. What do you think, Jack? I'm still a novice user of the Domino, so I really enjoyed the tips and tricks you provided in answering a Domino-related question. You mentioned being short on questions, so I'm going to send you a similar question to one sent a couple of months ago that didn't get answered. Well, that was. I built an outfeed table a couple of years ago to use solely as an extension of my table saw. Now I find it. Now I find that I use it for glue ups 
uh, and it is an assembly table and just about every other task. The table is roughly 44 by 44 inches, and I would now like to rebuild it as a true multifunctional table with the proper hold downs and clamping devices and could use some design advice based on the pros and, pros and cons. Oh, I can speak tonight. Based on the pros and cons you find with your own MFTs. One particular area I'm interesting, interested is in the size of dog holes to use, Imperial versus metric, and some recommendations on the type of dogs and clamping devices I should buy to get the best use of the MFT. Thanks again by having by far the best working podcast available. And Brian, welcome to the team. Jack oh, thank from you, Jack. Geneva, Illinois. So <clears throat> to unpack this a little bit, um, I really like my MFT table that I use as an outfeed for it. I can clamp just about anything to it using the Festool hold downs or a lot of the, you know, shop made clamping jigs and such. Uh, I've found that most of those clamping tools are available in metric and imperial. So they're either 20 millimeter dogs or three quarter inch holes. I, I don't think you can go wrong with each. I like using the Festool MFT top basically because if I cut into it and it gets, you know, crapified or whatever, it's only about a hundred bucks to replace in the six, seven years since I've had that I'm only on my second top. So it's not a big deal. Um, Hui, I know you have a, what you call your moat, your multifunction something, something table. Yeah, it's the multifunction outfeed assembly table. I'm sorry, I keep muting my mic because I got kids in the background out here That's and I forget right. that I mute my mic, so we got that pause. Excuse me. Um, yeah, so I like it. And I will actually say that now that I've built it, it might be a little bit too big. And here's the reason why. It's great as an outfeed table and as an assembly table. But even at that, it's a little bit too big. Um, I think if it were a little bit smaller, it'd be perfect for me. How, how big it's is a, it? What are the measurements? It's about roughly? 72 inches long and about 30, 40, 38 inches wide. So, you know, almost four by eight, but not quite. And I figured it would be fine not making it a perfect four by eight because, well, I'd like to be able to pick up sheet goods on it, I guess. Um but I actually have a little like, and it's made by Armor Tools. It's just this little butcher block top that they have like these three quarter inch holes in. But I actually use that a lot more for like holding down work pieces when I'm using the domino. Uh, gosh, I, I had a round table that I had to make a cutout on. And I use the assembly table next to that clamping setup that I have. And I clamped it there, but it was fully supported, even though it was bigger than that table, it was supported because I had the outfeed table there. And I don't often use the clamping elements on my outfeed table now that I have that smaller unit off to the yeah. side. I, I, I guess I, what I'm saying is that because I have a smaller unit off to the side, I'm using it more often. Yeah, I, I, I really find that the, the, the smaller table, just the clamp stuff, um, mm -hmm. 
not necessarily assembly, but to clamp stuff, having yeah. the MFT top. I love that thing. Now, yeah. Brian, do you have anything like that? I know you have an assembly table, don't you? Yeah. Now my assembly table is just, uh, it's 24 by 42 and it's just a white melamine top. Just and so you got no dog holes. No dog holes on that right now. Yeah. Um, and that'll stay no dog holes. Um, it's, it's the right size where I can usually get a clamp clamp on two different sides of the table on whatever I'm working on there. And yeah. then with the workbench that is in process, um, I haven't decided what type of dogs and or clamping devices I'm going to buy. I know what I'm going to, I know what I'm going to want to do is buy everything that looks cool and that I think <laughs> I should have. And then it's going to sit and collect dust because <laughs> it's not what I actually need. Um, uh, so I'm going to, you're making fun of us right now, Brian. No, 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 that, no, no, no. I, <laughs> because uh, that's me and I'm pretty sure that's guy. If I, if I could hit control Z and undo a few of my tool purchases over the years, I would happily, uh, undo that. Yeah, um, for sure. But no, it's, uh, it's taking that approach of, well, what do I think I'm going to be using it for? And mm-hmm. if I try using it that way with no clamping or, clamping devices or dogs, what will I wish that I had? And that's going to, that, that'll be how I, I tackle, uh, purchasing things, whether it's a, a hold, hold fast or just regular old bench dogs or anything like that for, yeah. for my traditional workbench, not, not an MFT top. I, I, I look at the, the assembly table and the hold down table as two completely separate entities. And the main reason is, is my assembly table. It's, I don't want to say it's dead perfect flat, but it's within eight thou over the the surface of it. And it's, I think it's like 65 by like 30 something. It's not huge, but it's not small. It's big enough. And the the thing is with that, you can't really, it's not designed to clamp anything to. It's got no holes in it. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a flat a grid, surface. It's a grid system underneath, and you, oh, know, you, yeah. you can't really um, put a lot of those clamping mechanisms in it other than if I wanted to put holes in it. And that's the other thing to really consider when you're doing this, Jack, is like the MFT table. It's only 19 millimeters thick or three quarters of an inch thick. Most of those clamps are, des- are designed to go down into the hole and clamp from underneath and then you know, hold it from underneath and then clamp down from the top. If you take uh, and make a, a workbench top, like Brian's making a workbench now that might be a three or four inch thick, none of those things are going to work on it. Yeah. You've got dogs, dogs, and dogs. So mm-hmm. um, there are a couple things like uh, bench pups that Veritas makes that goes down to the hole and then you got a, mm-hmm. a, a horizontal clamp on it. There's a couple other, I think armor makes a couple of those too. That'll work in in any depth of hole. But um, that's why I like having the MFT is simply because I can use all the the cool festival stuff because I'm part of the cool festival crowd. Ooh. ooh. I like the festival clamps a lot. I I will admit I've got the element clamps and I've got the uh, whatever the, it's like the dovetail clamp. It's not a dovetail clamp, but yeah, you know what I'm talking they could, about. Those are actually their track clamps. Track clamps. There you go. That's it. Yeah, so I did want to add one thing. You know, having those like surface clamping elements are really neat. I saw an issue of Woodsmith Magazine 
where uh, the the top had the dog holes, but also had these like sort of elongated holes in it, like really long holes that you can put your F-style clamps underneath. So if you wanted to use a thicker mm. surface, you can use the F-style clamps to get that surface clamping. Yeah, I know that's one of the, the things they do on the Roubaix benches with the middle thing mm-hmm. that slides yep. over and goes up. You can actually mm-hmm. stick an F-clamp down in there and clamp in the middle of the table. So yeah. Anyways, all right. Well, I think that about does and I hope that helps, Jack. I think this goes back to Quino. Yes. This question is from Tyler. Hey, guys, I've been woodworking for a couple years now and really enjoy the show to learn the fundamentals. I'm currently planning a walnut TV stand build and have a question about boxes, particularly box bottoms. The piece will have two support legs, one on either side. I imagine that it's not two legs, but like maybe sort of two leg assemblies. That, that's what I'm envisioning because he doesn't yeah. say floating here. A low shelf and an eight inch deep box on top spanning the 48 inch width between the legs. The box on top will have a lid opening from the top, similar to like a blanket chest and be used to hold exercise dumbbells, which collectively weigh about 200 pounds. My question is, how should I make the box bottom so that I can so that it can support so much weight without any extra supports across the 48 inch span? Hardwood, plywood, question mark, dado, a groove from the bottom. From what I can tell online, it might make the most sense to use three quarter inch ply and a three quarter inch dado. However, my understanding is that the recess below the dado should be the same width as the ply, which will leave a three quarter inch deep recess under the box that might be noticeable since it's floating above the lower shelf. Also, in an eight inch tall box, I will be losing precious storage space quickly. I was thinking about cutting a rabbit in the ply to insert only a half inch in the groove and fill some of the recess under the box bottom, but I'm not sure about strength. Maybe I could get away with just half inch ply in that case. The carcass of the rest of the box will be made of solid walnut. I hope all this made sense. Thanks a lot for your thoughts, Tyler. So I don't know about the second process that he mentioned, but I think the first process is the correct process. And that process is having the three quarter inch dado groove into the bottom of that, of those sides and using the plywood in that way. And yes, I think you are going to need some uh, amount of material underneath, preferably what, what you found three quarter inches underneath to get the proper support from the plies to hold the weight, uh, inside that box. I don't think you're going to get a lot of, um, bending issues with the ply because, you know, it's only eight inches deep. So, you know, if you've got a groove or a dado, not a groove, but a dado, supporting that plywood, I think you should be fine. Um, If you don't like that recess underneath, you could cover that recess up with a piece um, like a, I don't know if you can miter in a bottom in some way. So it, so you don't see that, that recess, but honestly, I think you'd be fine doing it the way you mentioned with the dado. I'm trying to understand his second process here. I was thinking about cutting a rabbit in the ply to insert only a half inch in the groove and fill some of the recess under the box bottom, but I'm not sure about strength. Well, he's talking, my guess is that that's a half inch deep groove, a half inch deep groove and three quarter inch ply is too deep. 
um, I think you'd be fine with a, a quarter inch. In fact, actually, there's a, there's a YouTube video from the same guy, Down to Earth Woodworking, where he talks about sheer strength of, and depth of dados. And actually, a shallower dado, a quarter inch dado is stronger, primarily because it has backing material behind it to support the wood grain. Uh, Brian, yeah. you, I imagine you might have encountered somebody requesting what putting a, putting a significant amount of weight on a on a box bottom. What are you thinking? Yeah, 200, 200 pounds is a lot, but I do think I do think Tyler that if you so if you're going to use let's say three quarter inch solid walnut for for the sides sides of the box, I think that's what he said. It'll be made mm-hmm. of solid walnut. The carcass of the rest of the box will be made of solid walnut. And if you do, yeah, just a quarter inch groove, um, I think even doing it a half inch off the bottom mm-hmm. and a quarter inch deep and then using half inch ply, mm-hmm. the thing is going to be cased in on all four sides. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be set in on all four sides. So you're going to get pretty good support and you're talking about solid walnut and still a half inch thick solid walnut on the you know after taking your quarter inch groove out Mm -hmm. i think i think that's going to be plenty strong yeah 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 it would i don't think it well never say never i don't think it could (laughs) sag (laughs) i don't think it could sag so much in the middle that it escapes the groove and it would have to escape it in both directions in almost sinking on itself in the middle in order for something yeah. to, to break loose of that. Um, yeah. so I think, yeah, quarter inch deep groove, half inch off the bottom, um, with a half inch ply is, is going to be rock solid. There you go. All right. Guy, um, you got anything to add? Not really. They, it doesn't say how wide the box is. It's just that it's 48 inches long. We don't know if it's 20 feet wide or 20 inches wide or 12 inches wide, do we? You're talking from front, to, from front to back? No. Well, he says eight inches deep. He says eight Is inches that... deep and 48 inches wide. But mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's the length between yeah, the legs. Yeah. I mean, how yeah. wide is it? Is it three inches? Is it 30 inches? How yeah. far is from, that span? Yeah. From front to back. I mean, if, if it's a TV stand, I can't imagine it's going to come out much well, more than 16 to 18 inches off, off the wall, right? Either way, we really don't know. And the thing is, if you're, you're going to build the sides on a solid walnut, you really have to pay attention to the grain. Because if you put 200 mm-hmm. pounds on a half mm-hmm. inch or a three quarter inch piece of plywood, I don't care how deep it is, whether it's three eighths or a quarter or a half. Mm-hmm there's going to be a lot of downward force on that. And mm-hmm. if you're using solid wood, that is a detriment to the whole structure of the piece because that piece could break off very easily. Um, the grain direction. Yeah. Because of the grain. It's just going to mm-hmm. break off at the, at the, where the grain is. Mm-hmm. So if it were me and I wanted to have the, 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 the side solid wood as visually unappealing as it might be for strength wise, you'd want to run the grain up and down, not side to side. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's an aesthetic thing. 
but in this case, it's going to be a structural thing. So mm-hmm. I guess you have to weigh the two. Um, but I, I think we're, we're getting caught in the axle of the, the, the whole, you know, how wide do I make it? How deep does it have to be? We're talking about the data on the bottom. Once you encapsulate that, that data on the bottom, it's going to be fine. It doesn't matter if it's half inch or three quarter inch for the most mm-hmm. part. Uh, mm. What I would be more worried about is the part underneath that that's holding it up. And if it's solid wood, 200 pounds is a lot of weight, bro. Yeah. So take that for what it's worth. Speak, <laughs> your, speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, with, with that flex, you, Brian, you're next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. My second question comes from Tom Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Figura. Tom, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your last name. Uh, Fellow travelers on this path of wood. First off, there has to be a better way of saying that. (laughs) Secondly, I don't think I've told you recently how much I'm enjoying the podcast and your new edition, Brian. I swear that's not the reason I picked the question, but thank you, Tom. (laughs) At first, I was like two hosts from Indiana, and I don't even believe that state actually exists but you've won me over <laughs> on, to my, <laughs> on to my question. I find myself wanting maple doors for my house, but I need 13 to start for the upstairs and I want them to be curly maple. So because I got in, <laughs> that's part of the reason I picked the question one, it's funny. And two, I love curly maple too. So, um, so because I got into woodworking to save money, duh, I'm going to build them myself. Four panel shaker style door interior doors ranging from 24 inch to 36 inch wide. How would would you recommend using maple ply for the panels or gluing up stock? Honestly, my concern isn't so much wood movement as the PITA it would be to make all those panels, which I think stands for pain in the ankle. And while (laughs) we are on the subject of pains in the posterior, maybe not ankle, would you recommend a domino or lamello? Save me a few minutes on those mortise and tenons or just jig it up. Unfortunately, I think the hand tools have to sit on the sidelines for this one. Thank you for your sage advice. Excelsior. Tom Figura. Um, so two questions. What would you do for the panels? Would you use maple ply or would you glue up stock? And then secondly, um, the the joinery approach for that. So I asked, I asked Tom just a follow-up question to say, all right, you want to do curly maple doors. Are you wanting... Mm-hmm just the rails and styles of the doors to be curly maple. Cause we're talking mm-hmm. 13 full size interior doors, 24 to 30 mm-hmm. ranging from 24 to 36 inches wide. Um, or are you just wanting, or, or do you want everything or just the rails and styles? And he said, he's thinking just the rails and styles and leave those um, four panels in the shaker style interior door, leaving those as just like a regular, regular maple. Um, I would, I would definitely use, plywood for that for the panels i wouldn't i wouldn't mess with gluing up the stock for all that i mean yeah my plane my planer is only 13 inches wide (laughs) so (laughs) 24 to 36 inch wide door you're gonna have you're gonna have to finesse that that center joint on your own without the depending on your equipment but most likely you'll just have to have a clean glue up and sand it if you're trying to do that um so I think just from a convenience standpoint, if you're just looking for regular maple in the panels, I would 100% do that using 
plywood and not not glue up the stack. But I'm 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 lazy at the same time, so maybe that's part <laughs> of it. Um, what do you guys? Anything you guys want to add to that, or do you want to tackle the part two, which is the joinery uh, question component of that? Uh, I, yeah, plywood. <laughs> <laughs> plywood panels uh, just make it easy on yourself tom you've you've done en- enough with that black lo- locust <laughs> yeah. what do you think guy i think he should do whatever he likes the look of um sometimes to some people it's worth doing all the extra work to get that that look and if you want the look of the curly maple and the panels of the doors, I say, go for it. Is it extra work? Yeah. Yes. But I, Tom's never struck me as the kind of guy that is lazy about anything. So, yeah. um, that's for sure. It really depends on what you want to do, Tom. I mean, it's, 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 it's your decision. You can't go wrong either way. Uh, if yeah. it were yeah. me, I'd be using plywood just cause I'm <laughs> that lazy. Um, as far as the joinery goes, uh, doors for regular entry doors and stuff like that. Uh, if you use a a biscuit joiner, isn't big enough for something like that. And if you're going to do dominoes, you're going to need the larger one, the DF 700 and big beefy dominoes to do it. Otherwise you're doing, you know, cope and stick type stuff with shaper with with big mm-hmm. um no, it doesn't have to be a shaper you can do it on a raw you don't think so but you can okay. you just you're just, you're just gonna be doing big mortise and tenons yeah along with that so mm-hmm. there you go yeah with a cope and stick door do you still are you still going to be using mortise and tenon sure or would you be sure. using the profile as a glue surface or the little, profile little, might tiny, not be little tiny stub tenons absolutely not not in a door not in a regular passage door or an entry mm-hmm. door or something like that mm-hmm. it's not enough um yeah. so those rail cabinet door it's fine cabinet door yeah that's fine yeah but yeah, you yeah. know something this big you know it's an inch and a half thick it's you know mm-hmm. close to seven feet tall it's big it's heavy it's 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 beefy so it's you're gonna, gonna you're gonna need some some extra room for that i mean if you look at some of these um rail and style bits that they make for doors right in the instructions mm-hmm. it shows you how to how to do the mortise and tenon work on those okay so gotcha. yeah it's not a big deal but you still have mm-hmm. to have the the capability of making those mortise and tenons that's and why a lot of, that's to... why a lot of people like that panel router because it's perfect uh-huh. for something like that Mm-hmm. So can you substitute the mortise and tenon? I think the answer is yes, but just to make sure you can substitute the mortise and tenon for a domino in that, in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, but you're okay, gonna, gotcha. you can't use little five by 30 dominoes. You've got to use, right, the big, right. you know, 12 millimeter and make them, you know, a uh, hundred millimeters long where they're yeah, going 50 yeah. in on both sides, at least 50 in on both sides. Right on, right on. All right. Do you guys want to tackle anything else on the joinery? No, I think I would go to the domino and I think that would be the right tool for it because the lamella is just uh, too thin and too um, not long enough or not deep, deep enough into the wood to uh, hold that amount of weight and that amount of usage. All right. Got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it comes back to me. If 
for the last yep. question? Yep. All right. You got the last one. This one can be really deep question or it can only take about 10 seconds to answer. But I thought it was kind of interesting because it hits me personally a little bit in some hmm. of the things I'm doing. And this comes from Doug Schriefer. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Doug. We'll just call you Doug. So happy new year, guys, and welcome, Brian. Guy and Hui have been kind enough to answer a number of my questions in the past, and Hui has always been helpful in making me spend more money. Oh, you're, you're such a nice guy, Hui. With my last Sorry, question, Doug. Yeah. With my last question, you helped me convince myself to invest in a CNC, which is on order now. And after watching Guy's video on his 3D printer, and he was kind enough to answer a question on the video for me. I was wondering if you three would expand your thoughts on CNC, 3D printing, and lasers, freaking laser beams, in the wood shop for hobbyist woodworking. I foresee having all three in my arsenal at some point in the near future. Thanks, as always, and I look forward to your insights, Doug. So as far as CNC goes, um, I don't use mine as much as I thought I would. But when I need it, I'm very glad I have it. And I use it mostly for forms and patterns. Mm -hmm. I don't do anything as far as like, you know, making signs and doing lettering and all that kind mm -hmm. of jazz. Um, if you really get into the CNC machining end of things, you can actually do quite a bit with CNCs. Um, a, a good series of videos that are out there on YouTube is Jay Bates does a bunch of bunch of videos on how to do all kinds of joinery using the CNC from mortise and tenons to dovetails. So it's actually a very versatile machine. Uh, it just has to be operated and programmed correctly. Um, mm -hmm. Brian, do you, do you have a, you don't have a CNC, do you? Have you no. thought about getting one? Uh, no, not really. It, I just don't think I would use it that much. Okay. Um, so I've, yeah, it hasn't really for the, for the cost, the space it would require and types of things I'm, I'm interested in doing it. Just, it hasn't piqued my interest. I mean, I see people make things on it and I would think, wow, that's really cool. I just, I don't see myself. <laughs> I don't see, I don't see the value proposition for me in that. Yeah. Hui, yeah. how much do you use your CNC? I know you needed some CNC work done. You have a CNC, but you paid somebody else to do CNC work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had a really, really large logo that needed to be routed into uh, a tabletop. And it would have been much easier for me to have hired it and uh, hired it out on a, a much larger machine, a five by 10, because I would have had to tile it on my machine, which is a four by four. The unfortunate thing about tiling is that if you have a 12 foot long table, how are you going to cantilever that off of your table? I mean, it, it's just, it's just a logistical nightmare yeah. of just moving yeah. that thing around in your shop. I agree. So I, I'm very happy I have one because like you guy, I see it as a problem solver, man, I got to make these jigs. Oh gosh. I got to make, you know, this bending form out of all these plies. 
let me just program it for the CNC to do rather than me having to go to the bandsaw or the jigsaw and then pattern routing it. And then, you know, all these multiple yeah, steps. It takes a long time to do all that stuff. The CNC yeah. really, really uh, cuts down a lot of time. So let's talk about these other two things. Okay. 3d yeah. printing and laser engravers. Now I've got all of that kind of stuff. I know you guys do not. So mm-hmm. I guess a good way to take this would maybe I'll tell you really quickly what I use this stuff in my shop for. Mm-hmm. And then why don't you ask me some questions about the machines themselves? You know what I mean? Kind of like yeah, be a yeah. proxy for, for Doug and ask yeah. me some questions. So the reason I got into 3D printing was because of my CNC. I needed, I found on a, a website called Thingiverse, mm-hmm. uh, uh a holder for my, my, uh, I can't think of it, the little aluminum block to that the, 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 the CNC hits to set the Z height. Oh, uh, the, the touch off block, touch off block. And they had a really nice plastic one that fit on this. I mean, made for my particular CNC machine and everything. And I wanted to just print it out. And I called my son who I thought had a 3D printer and he printed some stuff out before and he said he sold his and he didn't have one. I'm like, well, crap. Mm. So mm. I ended up researching it a little bit and bought one, bought a cheap one, an expensive one, and it just turned into a, a whole rabbit's hole for me. Um, yeah. Main reason is, is I've, I'm, I've always been interested in and have always worked with electronic devices mm-hmm. um and it, it it's a nice hobby for me to i can tinker with stuff yeah uh so that's really why i got into it i'm very much into 3d printing i actually have another podcast that i talk about 3d printing on it's called the perfect first layer go to the perfect first layer.com we're also on <laughs> patreon um so i got a question for you guy yeah so have you have you been using it for your shop? Well, that's, things? that's how I was going to get to, yeah. So, okay. Some things, yes, and some things, no. I mean, most of the things you can 3D print are of more practical application for the shop. So, for example, um, a big thing I know a lot of people use them for are vac hose adapters. No more of this... I'm going to order it and see if it fits kind of thing, which I think everybody has experienced, especially with a lot of the, 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 the stuff from Amazon. Mm-hmm. You buy it, yep. it doesn't fit quite right. And, yep. and then you have to go read about 80,000 reviews to find out, oh, yeah, this does work on it. So um, <laughs> yeah, everybody's been there. So with the 3D printer, I can just go and measure something with calipers and get it to within a couple thousandths of an inch of what mm-hmm. it needs to be. And it's fine. It just takes time. Is there, uh, is there a lot of trial and error to that guy or can be. you take, there can be, there can be sure. Um, my wife just got a new iPhone and I printed out a case for, it, it took me three tries to get it right. Mm. So, huh. but the thing is, is uh, the, the, the printing 3d printing it's not for somebody that is impatient. Mm-hmm. It takes hours to print stuff out. Not like 
an hour or two, like start it before you go to bed and it might be done in the morning when you get up, like eight hours hmm. kind of stuff. Wow. Really? So, yes. Unless you spend a couple thousand dollars and get a really fast one. But most of the inexpensive printers, they move very slowly and it takes time. It's not a, it's not a hit a button and five minutes later, you've got a product. It's hours later. You have sure. De- define, define inexpensive for your, for sort of a, in, a inexpensive, decent entry level. Inexpensive is under $300. Oh, okay. And there okay. are uh, a boatload of printers out there that are available under $300. Yeah. The thing with the $300 less or even $400 or $500 printers is these are designed for hobbyists. Yeah. And if, let me, let me give it to you this way. So Brian, you buy one of these 3D printers. I'm actually giving one of my, my first 3D printer to Matt at work. Oh, are you and really? I, I asked awesome. him, I said, so <laughs> you realize after the first three or four times you use this, it's not going to work anymore, right? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, after the first three or four times you use it, it's not going to work anymore. So you have to learn how to fix it and you have to repair it. Mm. It, It's a constant tweaking. You have to Mm, constantly, constantly tinker with it to get it to work. So it's not like a toaster where you put a piece of bread in, you press the button down and toast comes out. Yeah, <laughs> you have to tinker with it, and that's what you're going to get for the sub three hundred dollar three D printers. You have to get into eight hundred to a thousand dollars for something that even remotely comes close to. I plug it in and it just works. Yeah the 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 three D printing stuff is not very user friendly. The software isn't user friendly. There's eight thousand settings to to what they call slice the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into all of that on this podcast. Yeah. If you want to learn more, go to the perfect person. <laughs> podcast. I don't, I mean, that was a pretty compelling sales pitch for people to get involved in 3d printing. I don't know. Yeah. That. Well, I mean, if, if, if you're willing to make that kind of commitment yeah. to where you've yeah. got to, no, t- I'm, jo- I'm joking. Something I'm a joking. Little bit, it's some yeah. people that doesn't bother them. Yeah. It doesn't bother no. me. I like that. So, yeah. um, I did not feel like the learning curve was as bad with the CNC as I would have thought. I, I for whatever reason, I the I thought CNC was just a lot more difficult, and it really isn't as difficult as I thought. Because yeah. I def I definitely have that 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 perception in my mind on the CNC that that it would be something that would be difficult. It's good to hear that it isn't. It, it really isn't. Um, some of it pertains to what kind of software you have. Yeah, and from everybody I've heard. Uh, you know, invest in good software. It mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier. Yeah. So. The, the, the thing with CNC is that the one advantage we have as woodworkers using a CNC is we understand routers. We understand router speeds yes. and how fast a router can go. Cause that's yep. in the software. You have to set that. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to set how fast the bit is turning, how fast it moves through uh-huh. the wood, all that kind of stuff. And people that use a, router for the first or uh, use a CNC for the first time and I've never used a router before and are not yeah. ways or wise to the ways of the router. That's where all the, the, the crap happens. Cause oh, I'm going too fast and I can't figure out and they got to, you know, they spend hours trying to figure it out. So, um, 
lasers. Yeah, Doug also has lasers. I do have a laser engraver. And I actually am going to be doing some stuff for for work where they want me to make some, put the design logos in some stools we're making. Uh, It's kind of like the 3D printer. It's, they're not cheap. They're Mm -hmm. extremely dangerous. They can (laughs) start a fire. I mean, it's a laser burning through wood. You can't look at them. You'll go blind. Your dog, don't let your dog in the same room with one. If the dog sees the laser beam, you're going to ruin his eyes. I mean, they're dangerous as hell and they don't have any real, real protection on them. So when I'm using mine in the garage, I tell my wife, I've got the laser going, do not go in the garage. Hmm. So, and you've got to wear these special glasses that block a certain wavelength of laser and all this other crap, but it's, it creates a lot of smoke. It can start a fire. And you can't really leave it unattended. You can't walk away from it for the three to four hours it takes to engrave something. Again, this is not, uh, you turn it on and 10 minutes later, it's done. A couple hours later, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to, you've got to find a way to remove the fumes and the the smoke because it's burning wood. So, you know, you watch some of these, these YouTube videos and it's like, oh, it's easy. You just put it on here. You do the software. Oh, and look how beautiful it is. Yeah. Maybe three yeah. hours later, it looks like that. But yeah. it's, it's, it can be a pain. I, I see a lot of use for the laser engraver, uh, actual woodworking than I do the 3D printer. 3D printer is nice, nice to help make stuff you need for the shop, you know, like little holders and things like that. It can right. fix something temporarily and create a part for it while you're waiting for a new part of the real part to arrive. There's things like that. Um, but the laser part might arrive before it's done. But with the, with the laser engraver too, I mean, it's small and light enough where I could put it on a tabletop and I could engrave my logo underneath it. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I don't have to have a branding iron and all that. So, yeah. I think there's a place for stuff like this. You just have to be willing to, to learn how to use it more than yeah. anything. So yeah. it seems like to me maybe the CNC and then the laser in terms of application for woodworking is yeah. is maybe the process I would say. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I do want to get a 3D printer though. I think they're cool. <laughs> yeah. Just as a side hobby. All right. I think that will do it. So let's, this is the part of the show where we talk about what we're doing in our own shops. Oh yeah. Brian, why don't you tell our listeners at home what you're doing in your shop? I'm sitting in my shop right now. I've been, I've been chipping away like 30 minutes at a time on this workbench. I've got, I've got the top all glued up. I just need to finish. I got to run it once or twice through the planer probably just to finish flattening it out. But I've I've gone the slow and steady approach to try to keep everything everything flat. So the final final milling and flattening should be um, hopefully pretty painless. Uh, last weekend, I chopped out all the mortises. I got scared. A guy talked to me. I'm thankful that he talked me out of using the the router for it because um, mm. it was terrifying to cut those mortises. The the one or two that I did with the with the router at first. Um, not that I mean that's a perfectly viable approach. I just didn't quite have the confidence in it to 
to do it for you know all twelve mortises that big mortises that needed. So cut. you used so, use the drill press to do it. I used the drill press yeah. and and a. I wish I really really wish I had a mortise and chisel, but I just used a <laughs> my bench chisels and kept resharpening them and chopping and resharpening and chopping and took a couple hours, but got it all done. Good. Was the concern the size of the bit? Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was a brand new half inch upcut spiral bit, but yeah. my Bosch my Bosch router had I'd had a few little issues with it, and um, yeah, just I could have done it. It just yeah. would struggle. Yeah, I, yeah, I got through. I got through half of three of them, and uh-huh. they all. I mean, they turned out way better than the ones I did by hand, but. Um, <laughs> it was super messy. It was loud. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, I think it's a lack of confidence thing. I mean, you're most likely to get injured when you're not using a tool confidently is my opinion. And right I just didn't feel all that, all that confident going an inch and five eighths deep into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's, you know, could have mitigated that a little bit by, doing one side a uh, half inch down, going to the other side, but I would have had to reset my edge guide. How, how deep were the mortises? They finished out about an inch and a little over an inch and a half. So that's, that's a lot. That's a very deep to be going with a router bit. And that's why I was talking yeah. to you about that. It's, it's, yeah. you have to make multiple passes and it just takes. Oh yeah. Long. It was, a, it was, a, it was when I did it, it was lots and lots of passes but you get it in there and you got to get your hand over to the power switch while hoping that thing doesn't tip at all. Cause it's, you know, you can move it laterally, but if it tips it all front to back, it's hitting into wood and yeah. bucking on you. And yeah. It just, yeah, I didn't feel great about it. So it was, right. it was good. I'd never really done it by hand before, but it was, I'm glad that I did. Right. Um, yeah. I think I learned a lot in that and it was so nice not creating sawdust for once. <laughs> it's flying everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. What, what do you got going on? We, Oh man. Um, so I, I, I did some final milling on a coffee table that I'm helping a friend build. That doesn't oh, yeah. sound like I'm helping him. Does it sounds like I'm doing it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, uh, I mean, I had been holding on to the material for about two weeks. So I, I just milled it up for him and said, Hey, it's all milled up. So when you get here, we can go ahead and cut the joinery and we're just going to do dominoes. It's a very simple coffee table, tapered legs. Uh, but but that's all ready to go for the weekend. But this past weekend, I had the opportunity to go and visit a client and look at a shaker style china hutch, very large china hutch that she wants me to make a shaker style two door cabinet to match the china hutch. Uh, the cat, the china hutch was built by her father who was a very, very, very good woodworker. Um, everything is dovetailed carcass, face frames, um, custom cove. And so he's been, uh, I, I went and picked up uh, the lumber that he had harvested to build this uh, double door cabinet. And uh, I'm going to be starting that this week. Cool. Nice. How about you, guy? What do you got? Nothing. Nothing. That's what I have going on in the shop. Nothing. I, I'm still working on my my staircase, and I was. Did you fix that newel post? Fix it? 
That's a Christmas vacation reference. Never mind. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I can't think. I can't think what you're talking about on that one. So uh, no, I, I I turned on my table saw, and uh, I blew my breaker. Not oh, not that no. I blew the bre- the 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 breaker went bad in my box, and it's a quad breaker, so it's one of those ones where it you puts two two twenties and two slots. You know what I'm talking yep. about? So mm-hmm. it's not something you can go down to the local store and get. I had to order mm-hmm. it, and it's supposed to be here this weekend. And then I've got to pull all the equipment out that's in front of my breaker box so I can put that in. So that's what I'm going to be doing this, this coming weekend is disassembling my shop to put in one stupid breaker. Yeah. <laughs> Easy access there, right, guy? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so I think that's going to do it. And I'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. Remember, if you go on iTunes and leave us a review, do not leave anything less than five stars or we <laughs> will hunt you down. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you guys, the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found at Guy's Woodshop and all the social media channels. And where can you be found, Hui? Alabamawoodworker.com and all the social media channels are there. And Brian, how about Brian? you, man? Still still offline, getting close to the mid-February deadline I set for myself. Why mid-February? I just needed to buy a little bit of time to figure out how to do it without, without, uh, I don't know. I just, I do. What are you afraid of? I'm not, oh, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. I, I do, you know, we've got little kids, so I I do a poor, I do a poor job of having my phone on me when I'm at home. And if I have it on me, I'll be on it and not paying attention to them. I just don't have the self-control not to, um, so trying to eliminate, trying to protect me from myself more than anything. Okay. Good that's, man, that's Brian. I, that's fair enough. Good man. All right. So uh, I, I think that'll do it. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Talk See you in a few couple. weeks. See ya. Bye.